Hey everybody and welcome to iFreaks episode number 201. This week on our panel we have James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. Erica Sadoon. Hello from Denver. And I'm Andrew Madsen from Salt Lake City. This week we have a we have a guest on our show. And his name is Sarush Khanlu. Sarush, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarush. Uh, I live in New York City. I think we're saying the names of the city that we're from. Um, yeah, it's great to be here. So what do you do, Sarush? I, I know you're an iOS developer. Probably everybody already listening has already heard of you, but uh, tell us a little bit about what you work on. Sure. Yeah. Um, for the most part, I do contract work. I've been doing that for about a year and a half, and I've been really enjoying it. Uh, I also write a blog, which if anybody has heard of me, it's probably from that. Um, I did like a year in, in all of 2015, I wrote one post a week and I tried to go really in depth and, uh, I, you know, a lot of people saw those posts and, and that was, uh, so, so that might be the place that people might know me from. And then I also host a podcast, uh, as well. It's called fatal error. Uh, and it's with my friend Krista Zombach, and we talk about Swift, and we've been doing it uh, weekly for the past couple months. So that's been really nice. Yeah, very cool. I know you from your, from, from definitely know you from your blog posts, and I don't know uh, how long your blog's been around, but it seems like before Swift, you were blogging. I was, yeah. I started blogging in 2012, but most of my posts were really whack. Um, they were not very good. Uh, and it took a little while to like figure out my voice and figure out like what I wanted to talk about um, and kind of get the credibility to to put out also some of those crazier ideas um, that I'm so fond of. Yeah, I appreciate your your blog posts because a lot of times I'll start writing something like, wait a minute, Sarush already explained this. So here, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> go to Sarush's post and I'll explain what I want to explain. So I don't have to rehash a bunch of stuff. And I, your, the, the podcast is also excellent. It's a great resource. You do a great job of distilling higher level software engineering into the iOS world, which has lacked it for a long time. And now it's getting pretty important because we're, we've got apps that have been around for years and some of them you can do stuff with, some you can't do anything with. And just knowing those software engineering practices is real helpful. So it's a no, very solid podcast. This episode is sponsored by Rails Remote Comp. Rails Remote Comp is a two-day completely virtual conference. So if travel expenses are an issue or you just can't afford to be away from home for two days, then join us. The conference is focused on people who want to keep up with the latest in Rails, such as databases, front-end frameworks, or Rails 5.1 and all the new stuff that came out with that. We'll have speakers from all over the Rails community to help you stay current in the Slack room so that you can connect with speakers and attendees in real time. Plus, I'll be there since I'm the MC. It also includes a live roundtable video chat for attendees and speakers, plus we'll provide the talk recordings to you within days of the conference. Early bird tickets are available for $150 until May 27th, and the call for proposals is open until May 13th. So come join us at railsremoteconf.com. Just knowing those software engineering practices is real helpful, so it's a no, very solid podcast. Yeah, thank you. The the cruft in, in a lot of apps, especially the ones that have been around five, six, seven years, it really builds up and you just you need to dedicate effort to it to like fix those problems. Um, whether that's in the form of steady refactoring or in some even more brutal cases, rewriting. Um, it's definitely something you gotta pay attention to. So yeah, that's one of the things that we try to focus on, on our show. Um, Chris is part of a, a year long rewrite process right now and they've been learning a lot. 
uh, from doing that. But if you listen to the podcast like that, um, you don't have to rewrite because you do it right the first time. That's the the dream. Or recognize when things are starting to go awry. Yeah, exactly. It's good stuff. Is it possible to write code right the first time? Probably not, but it's you can recognize when things are going awry and get back on course faster. Yeah, the only cases I've ever heard of people writing code right the first time is when they very, very, with excruciating detail, spec it out to begin with, such that it might as well be code, but it's you know in the form of prose or in the form of pseudocode, and then they write the code. So it's almost like writing it once and then writing it again. And that's the only time I've ever heard anybody like put code down the first time that's like correct. Yeah, so. I, mean, I certainly feel like code that I've written that I'm really proud of tends to be code that is doing something that does the same thing as code I've written twice before. And I, I just finally learned learned all of the mistakes and all the bad stuff. And, you know, so, but, yeah. but being, being able to recognize those mistakes quickly and, and sort of implement a, a continuous process of, of refinement and refactoring and learning from your mistakes, I think that's pretty, pretty valuable and, and something that you can, can learn to be good at. For sure. There's that parable about parable about the pots where uh, they separate everybody into two groups. Um, one group just studies what a good pot is and makes one pot at the end of, say, a month. And the other group just makes pots over and over again uh, and then submits their final pot for review in comparison with the other group. And uh, it goes that the people who made a lot of pots make much better pots than the people who made one pot. Although I think it's kind of apocryphal. I don't know where the source of that is or if it's just a story or what the deal is, but it's, it makes for a nice parable. Well, we should just get some people together and tell them, put them in two groups and tell them to make pots and try see, it. Yeah, there you happens, go. Right? Yeah. Well, so I met Sarush at, uh, just briefly met him at Tri Swift in Tokyo a few weeks ago. Uh, he spoke there and um, Sarush, you did a talk about sequence and collection in Swift, which everybody has used, obviously, at least uh, indirectly, even if they haven't really gotten down to the nitty gritty because there are a bunch of... Um, things in the standard library that are sequences and collections. But um, if you if you start sort of digging into that in the standard library, it can be a little bit confusing. Like, how does this stuff all fit together? And there are different kinds of sequences and collections. And um, anyway, you went through and sort of demystified that. And I thought that would be a, a fun thing to cover on the show today because I, I learned a lot. Yeah, I feel like it's a really important and deep part of the standard library. There's like a lot going on. And you can kind of opt into the very specific behaviors that you want and to the sort of complexity guarantees in terms of O of 1 or O of N that you want to be able to provide with your type just by conforming to different things and like providing the thing, like the semantics that, the, that those protocols require. And so understanding those protocols, I think, is useful for working with Swift just because so much of what we do, like if you can boil it down to a sequence, you can work with it so much more effectively than, um, than otherwise. So why don't we start at the beginning? Uh, and I think the beginning is sequence. Yeah, for sure. Sequence is the is the simplest type in all the sequencing collection stuff. Uh, it pretty much, um, if you're familiar with Java, it'll it's I think it's sort of like an iterable. Iterable is the corresponding um, protocol in Java. So basically, it's just something where uh, it provides a function called make iterator, or, or well, when you conform to it, you provide this function called make iterator, and that's sort of a factory method that creates an iterator. And um, that iterator has this uh, conform to a special protocol called iterator protocol. 
Uh, and that just has a function called next on it that you can call repeatedly until you get nil. And getting nil signifies the end of the sequence. Uh, from this really simple behavior of just this one function make iterator and this other function next, uh, the standard library builds tons of functionality. So they build the functionality of map and filter, stuff like that. They build the ability to like, join sequences together. They build um, all, these, all these different components. Uh, all are basically given to you for free just by implementing these two methods. So that makes everything sound really simple. You just... yeah conform to the if you want to make your own sequence you just conform to the sequence protocol make an iterator that conforms to the iterator protocol and they each just have to implement one function that's pretty much it yeah and you get map you get filter you get reduce you get the you get contains you get contains that takes a block you get sorted you get lots of stuff just for free just by implementing those two methods you uh in your talk you showed um and and I'll, we'll post a link in the show notes because uh because Sarusha's talk is is online, um, the video and also sort of a, a yeah, that was the fastest the talk has ever gone up. It was, it's pretty amazing. It was like a week and a half, and both I gave the talk once in Australia at Playgrounds, and once in uh, Japan to Try Swift, and they both went up the same day. It was it was great. Did you did you write the the prose too, or did they do that for you? I mean, I the, no, they transcribe it. Oh wow, no, they transcribe it. I did have like a script, and maybe they went through and edited that, but I didn't really stick to the script. Yeah, it's it's pretty impressive. Anyway, uh, it, during during the talk, you you showed how you could build a linked list, like your own your own linked list implementation that was a sequence that is a sequence, and it's not that much code. Yeah, linked list is a it's a really natural, I think, fit for sequence. So because a linked list is like the element and uh, a pointer to the next link in the chain. Um, that really naturally fits with the way the iterator works of just like, hey, give me the next element and then give me the next element after that and so on. And so um, conforming to sequence is really, really not that hard uh, when you when you work with a, with a linked list. I'm not sure, should we go into like the details of the code? Like, should I like explain like how the code works and how it looks or should we just kind of talk about it more abstractly? I think it's... Well, we could, I I think we could uh, start by explaining what a linked list is. So a lot of, we have a lot of senior developers, we have a lot of junior developers listing too. And a lot of people that don't really come from a computer science yeah, background with program. this stuff. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, um, it's, it's easier to explain with pictures, but I will do my best to explain with voice. Um, a linked list is basically uh, one simple thing. And the simple thing is just what is sometimes called a node. And the node always has an element and kind of a reference to the next node, which itself can have its own element and a reference to the next node. And when you hit the end of this linked list, uh, that reference to the next one will either be blank or it will be a special case of an enum or something that signifies that that linked list is over. Um, and so in that way, you can kind of build a chain of elements that all go together and, and, and like create this linked list. The reason that it's really nice is when you work with something like an array, uh, the system has to create an unbroken block of memory for you where you can like kind of put your objects in that like unbroken block of memory. But sometimes it's really hard to get an unbroken block of memory, especially if it's very long. And there's other weird optimizations that you can do, uh, such as like breaking it up and, and you know, some system knowing how to go to the first part of it and to the second part of it. It gets complicated. So the benefit of the linked list is you really only need two pieces of space, one to hold the element itself and one to hold the pointer to the next element. And so with just those two pieces, they can just kind of point all over 
the memory at random places, and so you don't need an unbroken block uh, of memory anymore. So it's useful for that. Um, the the, the trade-off that you make when you pick a linked list over something more traditional like an array is that you can no longer just jump to the fourth element because you don't know where that fourth element is going to be without going through the first element, asking the first element where the second one is, asking the second one where the third one is, and the third one where the fourth one is. So you basically have what they call O of N, which is like... Um, if you want the fourth element, you're going to have to go through four times or n times. If you want the nth element, you have to go through n times. So that's a breakdown of what a linked list is generally. So this this actually brings up something about sequence. You we we said that it's really easy to implement a linked list in sequence because really all you need is uh, you know a way you, you need to be able to implement next, and that's easy with a linked list because you just ask each node for its next for the next node. Yep. But it brings up a problem, which is random access to, to a given item in the list. You can't just pass in a, like an integer index and get a, a specific node without going through all of the nodes before it, which could be slow. So is that is that also a limitation of sequence? Is that is it true that you cannot do like uh, you can't just do a subscript with an index on a on a sequence? Right. Exactly. Yeah. You pretty much nailed it. Because sequence doesn't have an index, you can't. Um, give it an index to go find. Like it doesn't know have it have any understanding of indexes at all. And actually, collection, which is sort of the next protocol up in the chain, while it does have a concept of indexes, it doesn't have a concept of random access. So even though you might conform to um, collection and you might have an index, even if you pass that index, like let's say four, as we used in the example earlier, you'd still have to step through the first, second, third, and fourth element before you got to the fourth item if that makes sense. So yeah, so sequence basically it has some pretty big limitations that other protocols, some gaps that other protocols fill in. So number one, um, a sequence can be infinite. Uh, something that Erica is a big fan of is the free <laughs> function, the like, sequence with state and next. There's a special function that lets you pass in an initial value and a block that transforms that initial value to give you the next one. And it's super useful. There's all these weird cases where you can use it and make super like handy collection or handy sequences all over. Um, this function sequence with the state and next that can easily produce an infinite sequence. So sequences are allowed to be infinite. So that's something you have to consider. So if you want to map over an infinite sequence, you're going to have a bad day because it's just going to try to map and it's going to spin forever and um, eventually run out of memory, crash, do something horrible. So sequences can be infinite. Um, later protocols kind of deal with that limitation. Uh, sequences aren't indexed, which we mentioned earlier. And the other really weird one that people always forget is that sequences are single pass only, which means that if you only have a sequence, you're only guaranteed to be able to walk it one time. Even and uh, and and that's even if you make a brand new fresh iterator, you may still only be able to walk that sequence one time. With it, you can make as many iterators as you want, but. You can only walk over it once. And I think that's actually a really frustrating limitation. If I had my druthers, I would take that out. Um, but it is something that you need to think about. So if you have, uh, let's say you're extending sequence to like add some function on it, if you want to try to do like, if you want to filter over that sequence twice, um, that is not going to work in every case because sequences are only guaranteed to be walkable one time. Iterators are definitely walkable one time. They don't have any concept of being able to go backwards or anything like that. They can only go forwards. But even sequences can only be... There are some sequences 
that you can only pass over one time. Most sequences are, are multi-pass, and all collections are multi-pass, but sequences can sometimes be single-pass. But you also have to take into account that sequences can be lazy. Right. So if you put into your mental mindset a sequence with like a little arrow pointing up to the current element, everything to the left of that, everything that's already been generated is sort of real. It's created real values. But in many sequences, especially lazy sequences, everything to the right is just sort of hypothetically there. <laughs> There's, there, you're not guaranteed anything about storage space, about the memory that takes. It's entirely possible that nothing in the future has been generated until you ask that sequence to give you the next element. And that's a really powerful part of working not just with sequences, but with functional programming in general. And sequences play such an important part of functional programming when you're working in the Swift language. Yeah, the lazy stuff is its own, I don't know, it's its own crazy whole thing. Like I, I completely cut out any mention of laziness in my for my talk just because I felt like I could do another 40 minutes just on like what it means to be lazy, how all the lazy stuff works together. Um, it's it's very, very complicated. It's it's a lot of stuff. So when we're talking about lazy, let's say we have a sequence which is just a we're just squaring a number over and over again. So Erica said like on the left side, you have this thing that real that you've already calculated. You mean on the right side where like you, we know we have the code that can create new, do a new squared numbers, but is that what we, what we mean? We mean by lazy. We haven't actually calculated them yet. The difference between lazy and non-lazy, and the the word for non-lazy in Swift is called eager. Is that an eager operation calculates the whole thing and creates an array out of it. Something that's lazy kind of just puts off whatever it's going to do until later. It only gives you the values it needs at the time you need it. Right. So a concrete example of that would be if you have an array of numbers, let's say one through ten, and if you call, you know, dot map dollar sign zero times two, you want to you want to multiply every element in that uh, array times two. If you just call dot map and then multiply by two. Uh, you'll, it'll calculate all of those multiplied values on that line. If you call lazy... So that's like, 10 multiplications, and right. it does 10 multiplications just as you call map. Right. It does it all at once. But if you call dot lazy dot map times two, um, then it will defer the execution of that multiplication. And sometimes that multiplication is pretty fast, but like there might be something that's way more expensive. Um, so it will defer that until later, and you may never even use that stuff. So if you call, you know, dot lazy, dot map, you know, multiply by two, and then call, you know, prefix three, which will get the first three elements, um, the next seven elements will just never be calculated. You'll just, like, when you access those first three, it will calculate those three. But they will um, sort of stay in this, like, as Erica mentioned, like this kind of in-betweener state where they kind of do exist because the code exists to generate them, but they also don't exist in any real form. 
Now you mentioned prefix. And so I have to ask you, what do you think about the fact that the debut of Swift 3.1 with its new prefix and drop functions, it debuted on the iPad before it debuted on the Mac? Yeah, isn't that weird? Nothing makes any sense anymore. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's very strange to me, like, that so yeah, Swift 3.1 came out on the Swift Playgrounds iPad app before it came out in Xcode for the Mac and like for like laptops and desktops, which is odd, right? I think it was really interesting. I I mean, they were going to drop Xcode, you know, the new Xcode fairly close. But they waited, of course, to sync it with the debut of the new iOS, the new um, Mac OS, because they needed to make sure that anything that was being submitted to App Store, you know, was golden. Right. Now, um, correct me if I'm remembering wrong, you ha- did you have a hand in proposing Prefix While? I may have had my fingers in that <laughs> nice yeah so uh so for the listeners there's two versions of prefix one version just takes a number and you can say like, prefix three uh and that'll just give you the first three elements which i think maintains laziness erica correct me if i'm wrong um the prefix three i haven't the slightest idea if it maintains lazy or not yeah i um and i also I... have to say that the work on the proposal really was kevin ballard Gotcha. I helped out with periods and commas. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, prefix that just takes a number will just get that many elements. But there's another one that was just added in Swift 3, which is prefix while. And for prefix while, you pass it a block. And as long as that, that block returns a Boolean, and um, as long as it, it'll execute that block for each element in the sequence, and as long as it's true, it will create a new sequence for you with all of those elements that return true. And as soon as the first one returns false, it cuts off the prefix sequence right there and then returns that to you. Um, and now and that it's has an to be an excellent not- place to use lazy, as but- I discovered to my <laughs> my dire, you know, outcome. Um, do- that has to calculate every element, right? So if you do, you know, my array of one to ten, lazy map you know, multiply by two. So now we have, you know, two, four, six, all the way up to 20. And then if you do prefix less than 10, it has to evaluate every element up until if it's, it returns false, right? No, it, it will keep the lazy. Once you've gone lazy, you don't go back. Oh, wow. So until you, it'll just kind of, that block will also float there, that prefix while block. And then once you ask for, let's say, the third element, it will at that point calculate, okay, um, let's go multiply by two, and then let's check if this should even be returned or not. There's a really easy way of figuring this out, which is you t- go into Xcode and you look at the quick help uh-huh. for anything that you're writing. And if it takes a escaping ah. um, an escaping argument, an escaping argument means that the argument is going to outlive the lifetime of the call. Then you know that the laziness has been passed through. 
Gotcha. Cool. I didn't that even is, think about that. <laughs> for beginner developers. I am sure that they are now just kind of shaking their head and looking at the ceiling and saying, "What are we hearing on this podcast?" <laughs> but this is a really important thing to kind of grasp in Swift: the notion of escaping, which is, you know, basically the lifetime guarantee of a closure. And I'm sure that you have a really good explanation of that. Uh, I can take a crack at it. I've taken sure. a crack at it. I'm so Saroosh, I, I teach at a, a teach iOS at a boot camp, so I'm oh, nice. teaching new iOS developers all the time. And this is actually one of the one of the concepts that's really pretty tough um, to, to explain in a way that they can understand right at, right away. But anyway, yeah. take a crack at it. It's it's such an abstract thing because you're taking a piece of code and you're saving it for later execution. And that concept on its own level is just so meta. Like storing a number is fine, but like storing a, a set of instructions, like a piece of code, like several lines of code is just so odd. Um, so what is escaping? <clears throat> so yeah, so if you're writing Swift 2.2, it was called the no escape. It was called no escape. Now it's called escaping. You're so, welcome. Yeah, <laughs> nice work. <laughs> Um, so now the default is that it will assume that the block cannot escape. And uh, whereas before it was the default, the block could escape and you had to mark it when it couldn't escape. So what escaping means is, um, is this, uh, so you, usually you use it to annotate a parameter to a function. So let's say you have a function that takes another function. Uh, we'll call it a block to make it a little bit easier. Yeah, so you have a, a function that takes a block. And if that block is going to live for longer than the like execution of that function, then it has to be marked as escaping. So what does that mean? That means if you store it to a like a variable on your class, that means if you um, pass it to something like dispatch after, where it will execute the code at some point after, um, after like the, the 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 function itself has sort of ended. If you pass it to any networking code, if you uh, pass it to anything like that, where it's going to outlive the the function itself and it's not going to be called only within the function, then you need to mark it as escaping. The reason that this is super useful is that if your block is marked as not escaping, then it doesn't need to do any special work to make sure that the variables that are captured by that block are still around when that block is executed. So for example, um, if you just map over something, you're going to call that block multiple times once for each time in the sequence. And, um, but when that function, when that map function is done being called, it will discard that block because it doesn't need it anymore. So you know that within the um, bounds of, of sort of using that, fun using that block inside that function, you know that you're not going to, like those variables will always be alive. Whereas if you pass it to networking code and it may come back a second later, those variables may not be, still be alive. So the block has to say, well, I need those variables and there's some, record keeping and accounting that has to be done and some retain numbers have to be retain counts have to be increased and it adds a little bit of overhead but when you can say hey this is never going to escape and the compiler can check your work and say yeah looks like that is not going to escape um you now know something about this block that you can optimize you can make it a little bit faster and so it'll like the optimizer will do all kinds of crazy things with your maps and your reduces um so that it will like make sure that they uh, boil down to like four loops at the end of the day um, if you have like certain optimization things turned on. So basically it's for as far as, oh yeah, and the other cool thing is you don't need to have self dot, 
inside of a block if it's not escaping because you know that you'll never create a retain cycle, which is also awesome. So that's my that's my brief overview. <laughs> How'd I do? How'd I do, y'all? I think it was awesome. I give it an A. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, good good job. You know what just suddenly occurred to me? Because you mentioned Swift 2.2. Yeah, As of the end of March, because I'm not sure when this show is going to actually air, but Swift 2.3 has been deprecated. Yeah, it sure has. And this version of Xcode now no longer will compile Swift 2.2, right? That is my understanding, but I didn't read the release notes really carefully. Yeah, my understanding also was that um, if you yeah, if you have a Swift 2.2 project, you cannot update Xcode because your code will not compile anymore. Yeah, that's what I heard too, which is a little scary because I think there are still people out there that have not finished their Swift 3 migration. There are definitely people out there trying to get their work done, you know? Yep. And there are time for migrations. Well, I want to I wanna maybe um, bring things back to our discussion of sequence and collection because this actually all started as a discussion of things that are wrong or, or, or sort of downsides to sequence, things that it's missing. Um, let's, let's recap those. So one is that they can be infinite. Right. Sequences can be infinite, which is not – sometimes could be useful, but is also – pretty pretty bad in a lot of cases yeah if um, you don't know that your sequence is going to be infinite and you try to map over it your your program is dead it's just going to spin forever right second one is that they don't have indexes right yep no indexes at all um unless it also conforms to one of these other protocols in which case it will have an index so like an array is a sequence but it also is a collection so if it's just a sequence you, there's no indexes there's no way to access uh, elements by like what number they are unless you want to walk step through them manually so if you want the fourth element you're gonna have to call next four times on your iterator and yeah and then the last one is that uh that sequences are single pass only oh right Se sequences are single pass only so how does collection fix that well first what is collection and then how does how does it fix these problems so uh collection is basically the next level up in this sort of uh hierarchy um, I kind of think of it as a ladder and that's kind of how I presented it in the talk with sequences at the bottom rung and every like step you take up on this ladder is like another a little bit a few more things you have to um, implement but also new guarantees that you get um, so so yeah so collection basically uh, it, it inherits from sequence in the way that protocols can inherit from other protocols but you don't have to implement your own iterator anymore and you don't have to implement the next function or any of that stuff you implement a totally different set of things and you'll get the iterator and all those other things sort of for free so the way that it works is you provide it with a type for your index so for arrays case that's going to be an integer for some other you know collection maybe you have some custom weird collection it might be indexed by a date let's say it could be anything um, and then you basically need to be able to say, I have a start index, I have an end index, so the uh, thing must terminate, right? It has to be it has to be finite if you're gonna have an end index, and then um, you want a way to access any given element at a specific index, right? And then the fourth and final piece you need is you need a way to take one index and get the index after it. That's all. There's no index before just yet 
There's no jumping around. All you can do is get the index after the index that you're currently looking at. So the way that and you can kind of imagine how that will get you all the sequence and iterator stuff for free, right? So you start from the start index, you get the element from that start index, uh, and then you like return that or you know you you work with that one, and then you call index after your, the start index, and you save that second index to a variable as you're looping through, and you get the element at the second index, and then you like work with that however you're going to work with it. And then same, and then you call it index after, and likewise, and you keep going until you hit the end index. And once you've hit the end index, that means your sequence is over, or that means your collection is over. So that's the nuts and bolts. Of how so why is a dictionary a collection? Why is a dictionary a collection? That is Erica with the loaded questions. All right, so um, it's weird, right? Because. Uh, indexes, they do have constant time access, right? So you can say, I want the element with the key, let's say, ASDF, right? And it will give you that. And that looks a lot like when you use an array and you say, I want the element at the zeroth index. But keys and indexes are subtly different. So when you use, let's say you call, so you, so you have a dictionary, right? And you call, you know, my dictionary dot indices. You'll get some kind of, uh, I think it's a sequence of index index indexes indices, um, but something. You get something that you could iterate over that has all your indices in it. If you loop over that and pass that index, each of those indexes to the subscript function, we're really getting ahead of here. If you pass that into the index function, you're going to get a tuple of a key and a value. So the indexes of dictionaries are not the same as the keys, right? If you pass a key to the subscript, you're going to get a value out. If you pass an index to the subscript, you're going to get both a key and a value out. Now, the question is, why are dictionaries collections? And I got to be honest, maybe I don't know the answer to that. I got to think about it for a second. Because if you think about it, what does it mean to have the next index with the dictionary? Uh, in terms of implementation? Just in terms of semantics. It makes no sense to yeah, me. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything, right? Like, they're not in any order. They happen to be in order because of, in some order because of the implementation, but that order is not guaranteed. Well, and that order may not be based on anything you have any control over from the outside, right? Uh, right, yes. Yeah, they're, they're using some hash table or something. I'm sure a hash table has an order, but... Yeah. Well, or if they're using a tree, like a tree might not have an order at all. Well, true. True. Huh, that, that's interesting. I don't, so, think, I don't think I even realized that dictionary was a collection. So, Erica, would you propose that dictionary not be a collection? You know, I don't know if I have an answer for that. Same thing for set. Yeah. Well, you can, I mean, set, the regular set uh, doesn't have an order, but you know, like Coco, Coco or Foundation has NS ordered set. So there is this idea that you could have a set that also maintains order information. Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails? I'm putting on a two-day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf. You can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. Like I said, it's a two-day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development. We have an online Slack channel, a roundtable discussion on Zoom, 
and all of the talks are given over Google Hangouts, and all of the talks will be streamed to you live. Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com. Right, but ordering is not necessarily, it's not guaranteed in really any of these protocols that we're going to talk about. Um, I think none of them guarantee that you're going to get the elements in the same order as you did the last time. Right, like sequence there might not even be a last time. And yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. So so you're saying if you iterate a collection by index and you do that twice from start to end, you may not get I'm just saying I don't think you're guaranteed to get okay. things in the same. Well that order. that sort of makes sense, right? Because you're not the one responsible. You from the outside, I mean, you're not the one responsible for going from one index to the next. You ask the collection what the next index is and how it right, determines exactly. that. Okay. Yeah, it's up to it's up to the implementation of the thing itself. Um, I'm wondering if the reason for that stuff is because you need something for mutable collection or random random access collection or something like that. I'm not sure. I, that's something I have to think about. Maybe there's someone who knows more about the standard library than us can tell. That us. would be Nate. Yeah, I was thinking of Nate. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, let's think on that. Maybe we'll come back to it later in the episode. I mean, indices are so obvious with arrays. Right, of course. That's why they they're there. do exactly what you want. They're integers just the way they should be. But have you ever looked at what an index is for custom types like your linked list that you did or for dictionaries or for sets? They're they're just ridiculously not connected to reality. <laughs> huh. Maybe it's so that you can ensure the guarantees of multipass and and um, fi finiteness. But then you, if you know you have a finite thing, you know you have a finite thing. I don't know. Yeah, I've been meaning to look into dictionaries index type and. Like, I don't know, it's got to be some nonsense because it's, it's not a key. It's it's not related to the key either. It's just some order uh, order of thing depending on the, like, implementation details, right? Indexes just to me seem really messed up in Swift. Yeah, I guess that's a really good point. I never really thought about it that way, but I think you're kind of right. Maybe Nate can email us. <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> well, that, I, I think this is actually, so I'm probably having a hard time articulating this, but I think this question here that, that we've been talking about is actually um, something that <clears throat> ends up in the, in, you know, a, as a regular programmer writing Swift, you do bump into these sharp edges a little bit, right? You want indexes to conceptually, I think most programmers think of indexes as integers because they are for arrays and that's what you're so used to. And yet the right. standard library goes to some length to make index a you know, sort of a type, <clears throat> it's genericized, so it can be anything. And you yeah, it's really abstract, you know? yeah, And it's super hard to figure out why you would ever even want that if you're just a, a regular programmer trying to use Swift. If you're a Joe programmer and you're using strings and you're trying to get substrings out of it, the current index model can just make you scream. Oh, and we're well, talking about something as simple as strings. That's yeah, a good I mean, point. We've 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 you know gotten our substrings out of our strings by by just giving an integer index for 
years in, in many different languages, you know, from C++ to whatever, and now it's totally different. So the first MS time you go through it... string is so easy. Yeah, give me the, the fifth or the tenth, uh, whatever it is. And But no, it's, they've abstracted away the index, obsessively for performance reasons, which I, I can understand. Well, it does make it... and there's some correctness stuff in there too, because uh, a byte... Or a, or a character is not necessarily guaranteed to be a byte, and so you can't get random access with a with a string. And like, so you're never sure how big something is going to be until you actually walk it. And it gets but weird. think about this, okay? Let's say you have a wor- "hello world" as your string, mm-hmm. and you want to get the second character through the fifth character out. Right. Okay. You need to say, "Okay, hello world string." I need your start index. Then, from your start index, I need to you to offset from start index by two characters. Right. And then I need you to offset from start index of yourself, because you can't just do it from an arbitrary thing. It has to be from you. Right. I need your offset five characters out. And then I need to create a range from these two things and use them with respect once again to the original string. There's a weird consistency to it, but when you compare that to the way you do things in foundation, and I'm talking about Cocoa Foundation, not Swift Foundation, it is a real pain. It absolutely is. The string model is really tough to work with. I I, I mentioned the correctness stuff, not because I think that the correctness stuff is like, necessarily important or that that it's that it's like the way it should be but just as the way that it is um i hope they make that stuff better because right now it's a total disaster because the code for what you're describing looks something like string and then you know the bracket for for subscript and then string dot start index advanced by two and then the range operator like dot dot less than string dot um start index dot advanced by seven or whatever. And it like it's a huge line that for, to describe something that should be really simple. And we're talking about a language that's how many years old now? Three years, four years? Three years old, yeah. And is the target of what Apple is communicating to its developers. Here's the language we want you to use to develop in. But our string model isn't quite ready yet. Yeah. The string, Can you see the problems here? There's a string manifesto that fixes some of these problems, but not all of the problems. It's it's a it's a it's a hairy topic, and it's particularly bad, I think, in Swift. Because the the string the string manifesto presents it also in terms of these are strings for computer processing. So these are strings of code. These are strings of JSON. These are strings of XML. Things where it's not user input. It's like designed to be kind of for machines by machines. And that's not the majority of the strings that we work with on a day-to-day basis. Like the strings that we work with are, are different and we need a we need a model for being able to work with them as well. And the string manifesto just totally doesn't doesn't address that stuff. So getting back to the different collection types, what other types have we not have we not talked about? Yeah. So yeah, so from collection, things branch out a little bit. So there is um, mutable collection, uh, which is essentially um, a 
protocol. So, so collection itself defines the ability to get something at a specific index, but not the ability to set something at a specific index. And so mutable collection is the, the thing that will let you basically set values at that, at like some specific index, right? Um, there's also, I would actually look this up. Yeah. So the other thing that comes, one of the other branches that comes off of it is range replaceable collection. And that uh, will basically let you take a range of elements and replace it with, you give it a range and you give it the new elements for that range and it will like readjust the collection itself. This is useful and this is like maybe the most complicated one because you have to define some of the, like many things. Like you have to define an empty initializer that will create an empty collection so that like if you want to delete elements, you can say, hey, take these this range of elements and replace it with the empty. And so they'll give you a handy convenience function for like, hey, delete the elements in this range. So you have to implement a bunch of weird stuff for that. Um, I didn't get a chance to talk about that in my talk because of time limitations. Um, but the one I did get to talk about is another branch off of collection, which is kind of, I think, like the primary branch and the most interesting, which is bidirectional collection. And all bidirectional collection does is, you know, before how we had the index after function, this also adds the index before function. So not only can you walk forward through the um, collection, you can also now walk backward through it. But you're still walking. You can't jump around. You can't jump around to arbitrary indexes. But this enables you to do a few interesting things. One, it enables you to get the last element very easily. So you just go to the in end index, walk back by one, um, and then return the value at that uh, at that index, and that'll be like sort of your your last element. It also enables you to reverse the collection really easily. So if it's a bidirectional collection, you could start from the end and walk backwards one by one, calling index before each time to get each index before, and then using the elements um, from that. Um, but yeah, like I mentioned earlier, it doesn't let you jump around. So let's say with both collection and bidirectional collection, if you want the count, it has to count that step-by-step, one-by-one. It can't just instantly give you the count. Um, you're going to have to start from the start index, increment the index until you get to the end index, and return that number of increments. Um, and that is going to be sort of, as we say, like O of N, or that's going to be like, it's going to take linear time. Like, the longer the array is, the longer it's going to take to to get that count. Um, so, yeah. So so until you get to sort of the, the, the last piece of this puzzle, your counts are even, even your counts, something as simple as a count where you would think, oh, I just want to know how many elements are in this. Like, why don't you have that on hand for me? Is still going to take some time commensurate with the length of the, of the collection. Now, what's interesting about collections is that you haven't really talked about the fact that they're protocols. Right. If you're in an object-oriented language, you're going to have a collection object and then descend from that or a sequence object. But we're dealing with protocols here in Swift. How does that affect development? Yeah, there's. Um, it's nice that they're protocols. Uh, you can kind of bring your own types anytime you want. You don't have to do any subclassing. Your types can you know, fill the role of multiple things. Um, so like one example of something that I do kind of often is I will make my own collection where it's like, a, let's say an API error collection, right? Like I know my API can return multiple errors, but I want to be able to like work with those errors in kind of a smart way. 
um, I can create a new type called API error collection, store an array internal to that. It's like, a, like an implementation detail. And um, from there, like I can kind of implement the necessary methods for forwarding the correct data back and forth from the internal array. And I can create a new type that acts as a, um, a collection of errors. And so that itself then can conform to the error protocol. And so it can at the same time be both an error and a collection. And with traditional inheritance-based uh, like polymorphism, you couldn't do that if you had to subclass for, for your errors and you have to subclass for your um, collections. You weren't able to do that. Now you can, which is pretty nice. There's also another thing that it gives you, which uh, I, I can't think of a concrete example of this, but there's one in the standard library that exists that's going away. Um, but basically, you can have uh, a super protocol, like instead of a super class, a super protocol that has two sub protocols and then one protocol that conforms to both of those sub protocols, forming kind of a diamond. Uh, in traditional object-oriented programming, this is called the diamond inheritance problem, so multiple inheritance. But you can do that with protocols. So there's a case in the um, standard library where there's a protocol. It's going away in Swift 4, but it's called indexable. And indexable has two protocols, both collection and range-replaceable indexable. And range-replaceable indexable and collection come together to make range-replaceable collection, collection, which you could never do in Objective-C because you couldn't have multiple inheritance. But because protocols can be multiple inheritance, you now do have this power. So that big protocols, it gives you a lot of weird, interesting, cool things you can do. Um, the last protocol that we, we could talk about is um, uh, random access collection, which is, and I'll do this one quickly. It's basically just a, uh, so range, um, yeah, so let me just repeat that then. Um, the last protocol we could talk about is random access collection, which inherits from or descends from bidirectional collection. And what that gives you is basically the ability, finally, to be able to jump to the fourth element and say, just instantly give me that one. Um, and the way that this works, there's two ways to get access to it. One is you can implement a method called, um, it's like a distance between this index and this index. And that has to have O of 1 characteristics or linear time. So like it instantly needs to be able to jump from the second index to the eighth index. Um, and if you can provide that, uh, and one other function that's very similar to it, you'll get these semantics for free. The other way to do it is if your, if your index type conforms to stridable, then it can jump itself around instantly. And that's the other way that you can get random access collection. So integers, if you want to go from two to eight, you can just subtract eight from two and you know that distance is six. Um, because integer has those semantics, because integer has the ability to be strided like that, and conforms to the stridable protocol. Um, anything that uses an integer index in Swift is uh, can be range replaceable almost for free. Um, so that's really nice. So range replaceable finally finally gives you count that has O of one um, characteristics. So you just basically take the end index, you subtract the start index, and you know how big that distance is. Um, that's count comes comes instantly. Um, you can jump to the fourth index and do that instantly. You can do a bunch of things instantly that you couldn't do before. And so random access collection is the last kind of collection in this whole tree of, of collections that relate to sequence and collection um, in the Swift standard library. So. so what's it like to travel to Japan? <laughs> 
Um, Japan was awesome. Uh, you were missing Australia too, by the way. I wish you could have come. Um, I know you did. You did like a. You called in to give a talk, right? Yeah, I have limited travel abilities, but yeah. but tell me, what was it like to travel to Japan? Japan was crazy. It's it's just like almost an alternate reality, uh, and like I think Australia was like this to some degree as well. Of just like everything is slightly different. Like you know, you watch your favorite TV show and they go to an alternate reality, and it's it's all the same, but it's all slightly different. Um, a lot of it is just better. Like the, you know, the subway card in Tokyo works uh, in Kyoto to ride the subway. So you can use the same subway card across the same country. Like, what a crazy idea. Um, and that's something that, like, you know, in America, it's just an absurd idea. Like, uh, for a while, I had, like, multiple subway cards in my wallet. I had, like, one for New York, one for Chicago, one for San Francisco. And it was like, this is bananas. Like, why don't we just figure this out? Like, how, how complicated could this be? Um the food was really great. I was very nervous. I talked about this on our podcast, too, <clears throat> on Fatal Error. And um, I really was worried about the food. I thought I, you know, I was nervous about trying all kinds of different food that I'd really never uh, been super exposed to. Like I've had sushi. I've had ramen. But beyond that, my, my uh, exposure to Japanese food has been kind of limited. But the food there is really good. I mean, it's, I should have realized, like, it's a major metropolitan city. Like, there's going to be tons of good food there. Um, and... and Tokyo and both, both Tokyo and Kyoto, which were the two cities I was in, uh, neither of them let me down on the food front. They were great. There was so much great food to eat. My my wife uh, went with me. I, I so I lived in Japan for a while. Um, nice. How long did you live there? Two years. Um, I I actually served a Mormon mission in Japan. So oh, cool. Learned the language and everything. Uh, I've been back once since then. Uh, but my wife, who's been to 40 or 50 countries in her life wow. had never been to Japan and she went with me which was, was really fun to get to bring her to a new country because usually it's her bringing me to a country she's been <laughs> to and I haven't um, and she told me that it was the most foreign at least the most foreign first world country she's ever been to like just she I think she actually felt a little overwhelmed the first couple of days we were there but uh, yeah I'm glad I had conference people to like kind of be with like if I were alone I can very much imagine that like it would be very overwhelming but it was nice because you had some you know people that you know concepts that you know like you get to talk about programming and I think that staved off a little bit of alienation for me I I think you're definitely right being at a conference with a bunch of Japanese people and 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 also a bunch of you know English speakers and you're all kind of there around a common thing that that's pretty cool if you're just there and you don't know anybody and everybody speaks Japanese and you don't. And you know, it's, it's, yeah. a, and then the, the, it's just, you're right that everything's a little different, you know? I mean, it's just a little bit different. I, uh, it's my first East Asian country, but it also like, it is very foreign, but it's also like somehow at the same time still accessible. I tell like, people that too. Yeah. And they don't really believe you, you know, but, um, yeah, there's like enough English around, uh, enough people speak enough English for you to like make do, um you're not gonna starve uh the there's like tons of guides because tons of uh, english speakers like really like japan and are happy to like write blog posts and stuff like that about it so if you want to know like oh how do i fill up my subway card like you can use your phone and figure it out um so it's it's actually pretty accessible i would think more accessible than i can imagine other countries being maybe it's really go ahead 
I, I, maybe this is just me, but um, I, I haven't traveled to a ton of different countries, but I, I, one country that comes to mind is Turkey. I spend some, some time in Turkey, and I, and I love Turkey, um, but I, Turkish is impenetrable. You know, I don't, think, <laughs> I don't even know what hello in Turkish is after being there. And, uh, and, and, I, and, and I loved it. Food was good. Lots of good things to see, but I also sort of always felt a little bit uncomfortable, you know, like I, like if I take this taxi, is it a scam or am I right. good to go? And in Japan, I never feel like that. Like, I don't feel yeah. like people are out to get me. If I ask somebody a question, they're not going to try to lead me down some back alley and, you know, steal yeah. my organs or something. <laughs> right? I've, so. I've heard that they don't like, there's not really a concept of sarcasm in Japanese. And so like there's, and there's a lot of pride in what they do what people do and yeah there was definitely a sense of like there's no crime there like, you just feel like you can kind of trust and do anything and you're basically going to be fine yeah and that hasn't let me down i've never yeah i, I don't i've never had like serious bad experiences with um with japanese people no, not at all the one thing that always gets me is uh how how early their subways close like i'm spoiled because of new york but like I mean, isn't isn't a twenty four hour subway system like an important thing? And most most cities don't have it, and it just it very much surprises me. Yeah, I mean Tokyo. I think its nightlife is just a little different. My wife and I went to Harajuku one night, and we thought oh, this will be fun. Everything was shut down. I'm like this is like <laughs> a center of youth culture, and everything Dead. closes at eight. It was weird. Yeah, yeah, that's quite odd. But I had a really good time. Um, my there was stuff that was like it makes sense but like just is different like uh, american hotel rooms are pretty big uh, if you're one person traveling like you're almost definitely going to get a queen size bed at least if not two queen size beds um the rooms are big the bathrooms are big it's just big in japan um i could touch both walls of my hotel room with like while stretching my arms out like at the same time like, that's how narrow this hotel room was. And it wasn't bad. It was fine. It was, like, a slightly wider than a twin-size bed. I fit in it just fine. Um, and it was cheaper than, like, probably what I would have spent on a hotel room in New York City. So Because they don't have to sort of waste space. What um, you're describing in mm-hmm. many ways is like when I would visit New York City. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Space is a premium here, too. But, like, even the hotel rooms here are, like, they're American-sized. They're not Japanese-sized. Like, I don't think you can get you know, 150 square foot hotel room um, here. Although I may be wrong. Like uh, I obviously live here, so I don't, you know, stay in hotels very often. Um, but like when I visited or when my friends have, have stayed in their own hotel rooms, like I've seen like they're they still have a pretty big sized bed, you know. Um, and the bathroom in Japan was also super small. I couldn't stand up straight in the in the shower. I'm six foot two, so I'm like reasonably tall. Um but I couldn't stand up straight in the shower, which was, which was, you know, you, you deal. It was there, you know, I was in that shower for five or six days. It wasn't that bad. Um, but yeah, just different. Everything is differently sized. They didn't let you out during that time at all. Yeah. Five or six whole days. Um, they would push meals through a slot in the door and it was fine. You know, this food was pretty good. <laughs> so are you going to go back? That's the question. I would love to go back, but more so than that, I feel like I now have, um, I feel like it was kind of a gateway to the rest of East Asia. Like I wasn't sure, you know, how much, how much would I like Hong Kong? How much would I like Vietnam? How much would I like, uh, different big cities in China? Um, 
And now that I've like kind of experienced or Taiwan, especially I heard Taiwan is great. Uh, now that I've experienced Japan, I feel like I can do Japan. Like if I can do Japan, like how much crazier could it get? Like maybe I can go to any of these places. So I feel more so than just um, like I could go back to Japan, which I will do. I do want to do. There's a ton of stuff I didn't get to see um, in my week there. But uh, I feel like also all these other new places are opened up to me as well. So it's a cool feeling. Yeah, it is a cool feeling. I had a blast. I, I hope yeah. I can go back for Tri Swift, assuming um, they do it again in Tokyo. How many how many times have you been to Japan? Three. I mean, if you count living there, that's one time. Right. And then I've been right. back twice now since then. Cool. It's pretty good. How long did you end up staying? I we we just stayed for for, for nine days, uh, and we right. we actually just stayed, stayed in Tokyo the whole time. Yeah, there's enough to do in Tokyo. Like, there's a Miyazaki, there's like a Miyazaki museum, um, kind of on the outskirts of Tokyo that I went to, which was pretty cool. A lot of Totoro swag. Um, hmm. There's there's this really cool thing. Uh, they basically it's like Mario Kart, so they give you an outfit. Um, like a costume of somebody from Mario or pop culture or something. It's like somebody was just Goku. It was ridiculous. And you basically get in a go-kart really low to the ground, uh, you know, no windows, you know, just open air and uh, gas powered go-kart. And you just drive around the city, drive around the city and drive around the streets of Tokyo. And it was so cool. It was like two and a half hours and you get to see like all these cool little sites and you get to really experience the city from like a perspective that is so different. I don't know who had yeah. the knock on the door. Sorry. I, I, I felt I, – I actually – I had heard of that. We didn't do it, but I saw saw some people doing it just driving by out on the street, and it looked like so much fun. It was really cool. It was really cool. I would recommend it. I would do it in every city if I could. Like any city that offered it, I would absolutely do it because it's just like you see so much of the city. You get to have fun while you're doing it. Apparently, they're just street legal, which I didn't really realize, but they're just street legal. So, you know. No reason you couldn't do it in other cities. Well, you're dressed up like Mario, too. Yeah, it doesn't hurt. Did one of you dress up like Luigi? So when I went, um, it was really late in the day. I think our our, our trip started at like 8.30. And all the Mario costumes had already been used for the day. Because like once you wear them, they like wash them. So there's like a bin. So all the Mario costumes had been used. There was like three Luigis out of like six of us, uh, which was a shame. Uh, but you know, you do what you got to do. So I was Luigi. I think I made a good Luigi. Luigi's a little bit taller as well. He's got you know, black hair like me. I made a good any Luigi. opportunity to be Bowser. Uh, you can be Bowser. Yes, they give you the little backpack to be the shell, um, and you can be Bowser. You can be um, there's like Dragon Ball characters. There's like Batman, Superman, that kind of thing. Um, all the Mario characters. There were Yoshi costumes, but they were also mostly dirty by the time we got there. Um, lots of different stuff. What about the princess? I I don't remember seeing it, but they, but, yeah, they must have been there. Um, let me Google. <laughs> and if anyone's wondering, this is not Nintendo running this. And Right. So that was part of the funny, weird... <laughs> Yeah, there's definitely this. This girl's dressed up as Peach. Um, this guy's dressed as Wario. You can rent uh, mustaches. You can rent GoPros. So yeah, so it's called Mari Car, 
And they make you, like, sign a waiver when you get there that's like, I am not confused that this is Nintendo. I am 100% sure that this is not, like, confusing me, and this is not a trademark violation. And I don't know how much longer they're going to be able to operate, but they're doing it for now. Um, Just be really careful that you don't lick the cart. <laughs> might be a little bitter. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I... I um. I guess there's an article here. Nintendo lost Mari Car patent objection. Yeah, so I was gonna so, say Mar- or Nintendo filed a filed a suit or something against them. And I, I, I guess it failed. Yeah, so apparently, at least first pass, they uh, they lost, and the and the Mari Car is gonna be able to stick around. Yeah, how about that? Um, yeah. So if you go to Tokyo, you gotta do it. It's super fun. Um, it's like two and a half hours too, so I think it's like a pretty good value. Like, it's not just you know, fifteen minutes in a go kart. It's like pretty serious. Um, so, I, what is the freakiest thing that happened that just set you off in terms of your expectations? The freakiest thing that happened that set me off. I gotta think about that. Yeah, I I don't know. I the. It feels a little like home to me, and I speak the language, however poorly. Um, it, the The weirdest thing to me, I think, is when people just come up to me and start speaking to me in English <laughs> because they want to practice their English or something. And I had that happen a couple times. It's fun. I mean, they're friendly, but like, I don't, I don't know you. Why are you talking to me? It's just because they want, <laughs> they want to try out their English. That seems that seems kind of charming, though. No, like it, it is charming. It's just something that would never happen here. You know, it would never happen. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. So I think the biggest thing for me that was really weird was like how thoughtful a lot of the things in the country were. So, like for example, um, you know, you come to New York, you get a Metro card. It costs I don't know a dollar now, and you put money on it, and then you can't like the the, I think the, the each ride is 275 on the MTA, and um, and but you can't buy it in 275 chunks. Like you buy it forty dollars at a time, let's say, or ten dollars at a time, and it doesn't break down evenly into the amount that you would expect. So you always end up with money on your card when you're ready to leave New York, which is like obviously they just keep that money, and you know you you end up throwing away the card, or maybe you give it to you, the person you stayed with, or whatever. Um, but eventually there's always some crap left over on the card at the end. And in, in, in New York, it's just part of it. You know, you just, okay, well, I guess I just, I'm going to lose these 60 cents or whatever. And you just throw the card away and you move on. In Japan, there are machines where you can refund the money on your, uh, on your Metro cards, which is so sensible, but you know, it's just something that like doesn't exist here. Or maybe there is a city that does it in America, but nowhere I've ever seen does it. And it's like, obviously you should refund people's money if they're not going to use it. Like that makes sense. But it's um, unfortunately not how it works here. And it is how it works there. And it's like really like consumer friendly and nice in that way. Or another example of this is um, I rented a car in Kyoto and, um, and it was really nice, but I had to leave a little bit early and I had to drop the car off a little bit early. So uh, I think it was like two or three days that I wasn't able to use the car. And I figured I would just take the 
uh, hit and just be like, all right, whatever. Um, and I returned the car and I gave it to them. And the lady was trying to communicate with me and she couldn't quite get what she was trying to say across to me. So I gave her my phone for the Google Translate. She typed in what she was trying to say. And they gave me a refund for the days that I wasn't going to use the car, which like I feel like it would just never happen in America. Um, so it was like stuff like that that was just like so thoughtful and so like friendly that I really appreciated. I guess I had that happen too. We flew we flew over on Singapore Air and um, our, our luggage didn't make it with our flight. We got it two days later, which kind of sucked. But they they handed us an envelope with, with like 250 bucks cash in it. Cash, wow. And, and, and called it apology money. Said, this is apology money so you can buy new clothes. And then when our su- when my suitcase did get there, it had like a three-inch crack in it, which I don't think I would have even noticed. And they said, we damaged your suitcase, so here's a catalog of luggage. Pick the pick a new suitcase, and it'll be waiting for you at the airport when you leave. And it was a $300 suitcase. And sure enough, it That's was a, it was a bananas. Yeah, I know. And here they would have just been like, well, screw you. Too bad. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, they would fight you on it. You you could try to like right. push them to do something like that, but they would fight you on and it. And I didn't even ask for any of that. Yeah. It was all just offered to me, so that was pretty nice. It's stuff like that that was just so nice. Have you ever felt like you're falling behind or that the programming world is moving so fast that it's impossible to keep up? Then there's the issue of where to go to make sure you're up to date. The answer is to join a community dedicated to discussing the latest in Ruby. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you got Ruby Rogues all day? Well, you can, kind of. We moved our Ruby Rogues Parlay forum to Slack. That means you can connect with our listeners and guests on a platform you're most likely already using. Plus, we've set up a Keeping Current channel that pulls stories from across the web to help you know what people are talking about. And coming soon, we'll be holding monthly webinars and roundtable video chats to connect with experts in the community and with each other. So come join us at rubyrogues.com slash parlay. That's rubyrogues.com slash P-A-R-L-E-Y. You could try to like push them to do something like that, but they would fight you on it. And I didn't even ask for any of that. Yeah. It was all just offered to me, so that was pretty nice. It's stuff like that that was just so nice. Well, we, uh, we're running kind of low on time, so I think we should get to picks. Um, Let's do it. And I know Erica is pretty eager, so Erica, why don't you give us your pick first? Okay, my pick is a website called recommendmeabook.com. And it just shows you a page of text. You don't see the cover. You don't see the title. You don't see the author. You just read the first page of text and figure out, is this a book that you're interested or not? And it's a great way to find new books to read. That's a really cool idea. You don't have to judge a book by its cover. You can judge it by what's in it. This is cool. I went to this page and um, I got a book actually that I remember from my childhood called The Phantom Tollbooth. Great book. Maybe that's my pick. The Phantom Tollbooth. Yeah, maybe you ought to. <laughs> um, well, yeah, Sarush, what, what uh, do you have a pick for us? So, yeah, uh, Phantom Tollbooth is a really good b- book, but I think that's more of a joke thing. Um, I have, uh, had a lot more time on my hands. Um, I've been working on some smaller contracts, so I just have more, much more free time, which has been really nice. Uh, and what I've been doing a lot is I've been cooking a lot. So in the spirit of cooking stuff, um, I'm going to recommend seriouseats.com. Um, I think a lot of people know about this site, but maybe not everybody knows about this site. 
Um, but it's really great. I got like a sous vide cooker and they basically like have great sous vide guides. They have pretty much everything you would want to cook. There is like a really in-depth, thoughtful recipe. They maybe experimented with a couple of different ways to make it. And they like kind of pick out the best and show you the results with really good pictures. I mean, like as far as recipe websites go and like thoughtful food writing goes, I just seriously, it's just so good. Yeah, I've seen some. I've seen some really cool stuff on Serious Eats. Um, I, I, I make fr- French fries and pretty much got my recipe from a big article they did about how to make the perfect fries. Yeah, and there's so it's there's so many details and so many like you could do it this way or this way, and here's what will like here's how it'll be different. I guess if there was one specific page I would recommend, it's the chocolate chip cookie page, um, and the. Uh, main serious eats person like went on like a six month tear just making chocolate chip cookies and has pictures that will show you like if you have brown sugar if you have more brown sugar it'll do this if you have more white sugar it will do this if you let it rest for this long it will do this and just picture comparisons and like all the pictures look great and all the food looks so good and yeah if I manage to put food in front of the family and the food is somewhere between freezing and burnt, <laughs> I feel satisfied. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, I I cannot say I cook every day, but when I do cook, I like to do do a good job. Uh, my pick is probably an obvious one. I might have already even picked it, but but my pick is Japan. If you've never visited before, visit. It's a really fun place to travel. It's actually a really comfortable place to travel, despite the the foreignness and the language and everything. You you never feel unsafe or like you're you know in in any trouble at least in my experience and there's so much to do and see there it's definitely worth going not to mention the good food yeah what a country yeah yeah i i I definitely love it all right well thanks sarush for coming on thanks everybody else um cool yeah thank you so much for having me this is a lot of fun we'll see everybody next week all right see ya later bye Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.